Well, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. This is episode number 370. And today I am going to do something I don't normally do, and that is run solo on a podcast episode. So if you're new to the show, uh, this is Mark. I usually host the podcast with a guest, sometimes with Steve from Exo Mountain Gear as well. Um, and usually I just don't, uh, I don't necessarily care what people think uh, I have to say. I'm much more interested in having conversations with other people uh, and learning from them and what their experiences are. But today, the reason I'm doing this episode solo is to talk about a rifle, um, a rifle that I've built a couple of years ago that um, has been out there in different things in different ways and I've gotten questions about. So one, I wanted to talk about the rifle to address some questions. And then two, I just don't think there is necessarily enough in-depth information on things. Um, You can say high dollar gear in general. So this is a custom rifle. Um, Definitely something that is an investment of a good chunk of change. And I feel like there's a lot of, oh, cool, check out my new custom rifle that was just built. But I don't feel that there's enough um, objective, transparent information after the fact. Meaning, I spent all this money, like, here's what I did wrong. Or what I would change. um, Or how things have been going now, years later, and not just when I got this new fancy thing. So, I just want to talk through it on the podcast, and this is in addition to an article, basically, that I wrote about this rifle build as well. And so I'm going to speak to all the components of this rifle um, and essentially summarize some things. But if you guys want to see the rifle itself, if you want links to any of the items that I mentioned today, um, then definitely go check out that article that I wrote as well. So this article and the podcast are going to cover some, some of the same ground, but complement each other. And I'll certainly say some things in the podcast I didn't say in the article and vice versa. Also, I fully anticipate um, that I'm not going to answer all the questions and that there will be other questions, whether it's about my rifle in particular or about maybe rifles in general, custom rifles, upgrading factory rifles, etc. So as always, as we often say on the show, feel free to reach out. Let us know what questions you have. You can send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. You can look for the link in the show description that says leave a message and leave an audio message. And uh, I will do a follow-up here later this fall to address in particular any of those rifle questions. Um, that I get. So I'm going to try to be somewhat brief yet at the same time uh, provide some good information. I have a feeling this is probably going to go kind of long. First things first, start with some background. Um, I grew up shooting rifles ever since, honestly, I can remember. Um, It wasn't anything fancy. Uh, Even before I hunted, I just like, I spent countless hours at my grandpa's property uh, shooting soda cans off of a fence post with a 22. Um, it was just a blast. I've just always loved shooting ever since I was little. Um, and so that's been my background. I've never was into anything crazy, competition shooting, etc. 
And one thing unique is I am left eye dominant and shoot a rifle left-handed, always have, even though I do most other things right-handed, never owned a left-handed rifle um, until honestly, probably six, seven years ago. So um, that rifle in particular was a Tika that I purchased and then upgraded and quote unquote built over time, which actually I have a whole separate series of articles about that Tika. Um, Again, if you check out links in the show description, you can see that. So that was kind of one of my first real rifles that I selected for myself for big game hunting and then went through the process of upgrading. This rifle in particular I'm talking about today, uh, as I mentioned, is much more of a true custom rifle. Um, It is a 7 SOM, which is a short action ultra mag, uh, and I can talk a bit more about that later. But really for me, I did want to build a do-it-all rifle, and that's a a term that's obviously thrown out quite a bit. When I say do-it-all, I mean for the species that I intend to hunt, obviously. Um, I don't, when I say do-it-all, I'm not considering brown bear, right? I don't have any plans to hunt brown bear. So for me, a do-it-all big game rifle is deer, elk, uh, black bear. I have a mountain goat hunt coming up, etc. So Um, A rifle I can use in the Midwest for whitetail, I could use out west for mule deer or elk or bear, Uh, I could take it to Alaska for Sitka blacktail, caribou, Um, I would use it on moose. So that was kind of my intention with the rifle. Doing a lot of backpack hunting, I wanted to build something relatively lightweight Um, and then also over time, and this is a change that we can talk about in a bit, uh, want it to be compact as well. So it's currently in a folding chassis, for example. So I'm going to, um, kind of just run down things. I have my article pulled up. I'm going to run through each component and talk a little bit about those components as well. So, um, first things first. You know, if you're going to build a rifle or even if you have a factory rifle that you want to upgrade, um, you may need some help from obviously for a custom build, some a true gun builder, or maybe you need some services for a factory rifle, such as swapping out a barrel, etc. Clearly, there's a ton of great options out there. There's countless gunsmiths and rifle builders these days. Um, I've used a few different people for a few different projects. This rifle in particular was built by the guys at Sterling Precision. Um, I first got a recommendation from them, um, from someone in the industry, and then actually only realized later they were uh, somewhat local to me. I had a chance to go actually like go to their place, visit them, check out their operation, etc. So They've been great to work with, um, the short story. They built this rifle at the time. I didn't really know them other than that recommendation. They didn't know me in terms of like, they didn't know I had a podcast, worked for XO, et cetera. Um, Built the rifle, was thoroughly impressed again on delivery, but I was more concerned with what their service and the quality and the results of their, their, their build would be later. Um, been happy with everything 
since then I've gotten to chance to shoot with Adam who owns Sterling Precision. Um, and he is certainly a shooter. <laughs> uh, yeah, like certain things come to mind. We were out shooting one day at a mutual friend's kind of property. Um, actually, I didn't, when I went to go shoot this day, I had no idea what Adam was going to be there. He had no idea I was going to be there. We happened to both be invited by someone who didn't know that even Adam and I knew each other. But we ended up at the same place we were shooting. There was a full-size steel silhouette of a sheep and i think the yardage was a thousand sixty maybe a thousand eighty um but we were just having fun hitting steel we had targets as close as 100 and targets all the way out to a mile but the sheep in particular we spent some time shooting at and had a bunch of fun and we were kind of wrapping up the day and adam was like who thinks i could take a headshot just on the steel right not a real animal and I'm thinking, man, there's no way. Like I've been, I've been shooting this thing all day. It was a tricky. There was some winds. You're kind of shooting across some water. There were some different things. And sure enough, man, Adam, just a dead ringer. So anyway, it's been fun getting to know him. Uh, he's a great shooter. He's a hunter himself, and just has a background originally not in rifles, but was just kind of dissatisfied with rifles that he had built. Um, through other people in the past and he's just one of those entrepreneurial i'm gonna fix this type guys and he started sterling precision and built a great team uh there of machinists and state-of-the-art equipment and yeah they just have a really cool facility really great guys so um, it's been fun to get to know them if you are interested in either a full-on custom build they do that or if you need some work done um, I'm sure they would be happy to work with you on that. So again, that's like a one of many, um, I'm sure, great rifle builders out there. But if you're looking for someone based on a recommendation, um, I would highly recommend them. They're shooters, they're hunters. They build the rifles not only for hunting, but for extreme long range competition. So like true professional competition, extreme long range shooters um, that are shooting way further than honestly i can even comprehend um they've done work for applied ballistics and brian litz and guys on his team so it, that was one thing reassuring even to me was hey me as a hunter i'm nobody special but the fact that they do work for people who are doing things well beyond my capability um was just reassuring for me as well so check those guys out uh, if you need any work done, and um, I will certainly be using them in the future. All right, going down the line, so the components of the rifle, some of these were things that I had already sourced for the rifle. And then um, at the time that I built this, it was pre-COVID, but also post-Biden um, getting elected, and the whole rifle market was just crazy. Stuff was hard to find. And that's another great thing about Sterling Precision is not only are they a builder, but they just have a ton of stuff on hand. So they don't they don't have necessarily crazy long lead times like a lot of rifle builders do because they have a ton of stuff on the shelf where they can build a rifle for you from what's already available. Anyway, I searched like far and wide, for example, for a very specific barrel that I wanted to use, struggled to find it they had one on the shelf. So I purchased some of the components from Sterling, 
some of the components I had already had sourced myself and just basically gave everything to Adam and his team and they put it all together and again did a great job. But the action is the Defiance Anti-X action. Um, this is from Defiance Machine Company. Mike from Defiance was on the podcast back in episode 340, so not that long ago. Kind of the same story there. I reached out to Mike, wanted to get in action. Again, at the time, they didn't know us. We didn't know them, etc. I'd just done a lot of my own research and wanted a very light action for this rifle build, but didn't want to go with titanium. I have a titanium action on another rifle. I like it. I don't love it. Um, and so when the Defiance Anti came out, it is essentially a steel action that is heavily skeletonized, fluted, etc., to to keep all the benefits you want in a rifle action of steel, but make it as light as possible. And so it's going to be within ounces total weight-wise of a titanium action, but doesn't have some of the potential downsides that a titanium action can have. So I... I wanted the anti, um, reached out to them and was able to purchase one. The anti X in particular, the difference between just an anti and the anti X action, the X just means that there's an integrated Picatinny rail. It's not, um, screwed on. It is truly integral and part of the entire action and machined. So it's all one piece, one less failure point. Your, your rail, is never going to move. It can't move. Again, it's integral. So the anti-X is a fantastic action if you're looking for a steel action that is going to be really light and rival, again, something like a titanium action. What's great with Defiance is too, you just have a lot of options. So again, as I mentioned, I'm left-handed. That was no issue for them. Um, You can pick yeah, there's just a lot of options. We talked a lot about that in the podcast. Again, that was episode 340. Um, both Steve and I built rifles on these Defiance Anti-X actions. I don't have much to say other than I'm just like thoroughly happy with it. It's a fantastic action. Operation is smooth. Cycles great. Feeds great. Um, I've had it, you know, in dust and dirt and obviously all the stuff you encounter backcountry hunting zero issues. Um, just a fantastic action. And if you're into like prefits, um, it is an action that you can get prefit barrels for, which is always a really nice option. And I've just, you know, over time begun to realize that an action like this essentially can outlive a rifle. Meaning I have my rifle right now built on this action and one certain, configuration, etc. But in the future, if I want, you know, if I shoot out this seven Psalm and I want a new barrel and maybe at that point I want a different barrel, maybe I want a different cartridge caliber. Maybe I want to make it a 300. Like I can do any of that. An action is a really a lifetime purchase that essentially will be the core component of your rifle now, but in the future could be the core component of potentially a different rifle configuration. Um, so yeah, Defiance Anti-X action, really like it. The one thing um, unique, and this is where I get into 
a change that I would have made in this build is that I selected their XM length action. So it's a medium length action. It's between a short action and a long action. The And this is like Defiance does this. There's a few other action manufacturers that have essentially different versions of a medium length action. But the whole reason um, that these have really become popular is short action cartridges, such as my 7 Psalm, um, would be true of a 6.5 PRC, would be true of a 300 Winchester Short Mag. Those are all cartridges that are built for a short action, but when you're running modern high BC bullets, and in particular heavy for caliber bullets, that short action can be limiting for your overall cartridge length and powder capacity. So if you go to a medium length action, you can seat that bullet out a bit further um, for again, those heavier high BC bullets. I went with the XM length action for a seven Psalm. And I just found out that for what I'm doing, I just don't need it. And so it's not necessarily a big downside to have the XM length action and not need it. Again, in the future, maybe I want to turn this rifle into a 300 short mag and I will want the XM length. But I will say when you go to an XM length action, you're just more limited on stock choice, chassis choice, either way you look at that, and then also cartridge feeding. So whether that's a built-in bottom metal with a hinged foreplate, whether that's a magazine, because that XM length is a bit more specialized, there's just not as many options on the market when it comes to the accessories, essentially, that work with the XM length action. So for me, with my 7 Psalm, um, I've developed loads with a wide variety of hunting bullets. Um, the Hammer Hunters, which are a mono metal bullet, Acubons, Partitions, um, multiple Burger bu bullets, ELDX, um, Acubon Long Range, etc. For all of those bullets, I don't need the extra length that the XM provides. So I would have been, again, there's, this isn't a big downside, but I would have been better off for my use case, sticking with a short action, and would it, it would just make things easier um, to get stocks, chassis, bottom metal, magazines, etc. So no fault of defiance, no fault of anybody other than um, if I would have done more research, and I did do a lot of research, but it's, it's funny that most of the opinions are Go with the XM length, go with the XM length, go even with a long action on a short action um, cartridge. And that can be true, but it doesn't mean it's true for you. So a perfect example is the guys shooting a seven Psalm and running 180 grain plus bullets for long range shooting may absolutely need an XM length or even a long action. For me, the bullets I'm shooting for hunting I don't need it. So it may have been true for them, may have been what they need. Doesn't mean it was true for me. Just keep that principle in mind when you look to build a rifle, upgrade a rifle, etc. You can read all kinds of things on the internet, talk to all kinds of people. Maybe true for them, doesn't mean it's true for you. For me, I it would have been easier. We'll just put it that way to go with short action. Case in point, when I got my chassis, which we'll talk about here in a second. I needed a detachable magazine. 
the XM length detachable magazines for a 7SOM type cartridge are extremely limited. MDT makes a great one, but it's only offered in 10 rounds. I don't want a giant 10 round magazine for hunting. So thankfully there's an option. The guys at Kinport Peak Rifles have particularly done a bunch of magazine conversions and are able to take that 10 round magazine, modify it down to a three round or a four round, which is what I did. Their work was phenomenal. Magazine looks like it was built that way from the beginning, but it was a costly process to both purchase the magazine and have it modified. If I was within a short action, would have saved me quite a bit of money and time as an example. All right, so that's the action. The barrel is a proof research carbon barrel. This is the third proof research carbon barrel I've owned. All three of them have been great. Um, that includes prefit as well. So the prefit I've had great luck with. This was not a prefit barrel. It was something that, again, the guys at Sterling Precision um, cut and chambered for me. In all of the three proof research barrels I've owned, I've had zero issues getting multiple hunting rounds to shoot under a half MOA. Um, can't complain with that. Also like that proof research barrels, in my experience, they don't tend to have issues fouling up heavily, and then they also just clean very easily, um, which is nice. When it comes to carbon barrels, again, read the internet, there's a lot of opinions. Some guys just say, oh, they're nothing but you know, looks and aesthetics and whatever. And I'll give it that. They look cool. For me though, especially since I shoot suppressed, there's so many benefits to the carbon barrel in particular that you can have a lighter weight barrel. That's not pencil thin. So if you wanted a steel barrel that rivaled the weight of a carbon fiber barrel, totally doable. But that barrel profile is going to be incredibly thin. And then when you go to put on a muzzle device, whether that's a suppressor or even some muzzle brakes, you both have issues having enough thread to have your barrel threaded properly because you don't, you just don't have enough material to thread it well because the steel barrel is so thin and, or you're losing rigidity again, because that steel barrel is so thin that as you add weight to the end of the barrel, even something light, uh, which my Thunder Beast suppressors are light, but as you add weight to a thin steel barrel, the barrel's just not as stiff. So you have more harmonics at play because you essentially have a weight hanging off of the end of a steel barrel that isn't as stiff as a carbon barrel would be. So you're gonna get more point of impact shift, more barrel whip, etc. So the carbon barrel, Yes, it looks cool, but the practical benefits for me are you can have something that's light, stiff, and has great threading for a muzzle device or a suppressor. So um, a lot of carbon barrel manufacturers out there these days, um, kind of countless. Proof was obviously one of the first. Um, I think they have a great track record. In my experience, having three of them They've all been phenomenal. I just don't, I don't plan to go anywhere else there. This speaks to another change I would have made on the rifle. As I mentioned before, when I 
was building this rifle, components were incredibly hard to find. I'm not exaggerating when I say I searched across the country for a 20-inch, 7-millimeter proof barrel blank. Did not exist. Like, I called all of the proof dealers. Um, Maybe someone, you know, an individual I'm sure had one they were sitting on. But in terms of the places you could actually go to and buy a barrel, I spent weeks called everybody it didn't exist i had to get a 22 inch barrel i could have either waited and built this rifle another time could have been an option waited for the market to get better supply chain etc i could still be waiting up until relatively recently but this is a rifle i wanted to get i wanted to build i wanted to hunt with it i went up to the 22 inch barrel it's not bad um but i wish i could have gone shorter in the future i will go shorter um in fact i will build an 18 inch um barrel next time so when i shoot out this 22 inch barrel or want to make a change um i will be sticking with seven song by the way we can talk more about that later um but i've already found an 18 inch barrel that will be in be my next barrel for this rifle so if you're shooting suppressed um Obviously, there's a point of diminishing returns, but depending on your cartridge, man, really consider going shorter. I have a 20-inch 6.5 Creedmoor, for example. Um, This all sounds funny, but like those two inches make a difference between my 22-inch and my 20-inch, and then what will in the future be an 18-inch as well. So proof barrels, fantastic for me. Um, The suppressor, as we talk about barrels... You know, we've had suppressor podcasts in the past. Um, Episode 203 was our very first one. That was with the guys from Thunder Beast about um, suppressors and their history and their use for hunting. Uh, That was a couple years ago. And then more recently, episode number 333 was also about suppressors and more about the legality of suppressors and how to get one. Um, that was with the guys from Silencer Central. So if, if you want to hear more about suppressors, episodes 203 and 333 are great. Um, the story with Thunder Beast is, is kind of similar to Defiance and everything else. I independently did my own research and settled on what suppressor do I want and then reached out and said, hey, can I order a suppressor through you guys? Like through direct Thunder Beast has um, a program. Um, I have zero regrets. So the Thunder Beast Ultra 7 is the suppressor I've had for two plus years now. Um, in that time, their Ultra series of suppressors, they have a five inch, a seven inch, and a nine inch. They're on currently Gen 2 of those. Um the Gen 2 are essentially wider, quieter, better. Um, I mean, they were already great suppressors, but my Ultra 7 is a Gen 1. I recently got their Ultra 5 Gen 2. Um, this whole time, Steve, from the very first time we, we ordered suppressors at the same time, he did get an Ultra 5, so he has the Gen 1 Ultra 5. Um, we've talked you know, about the pros and cons of that. I think it boils down to... Obviously, the Ultra 5 is going to be quieter and shorter. It's not going to be, or sorry, I said quieter. The The Ultra 5 is going to be lighter and shorter, 
but not as quiet um, as the Ultra 7, for example. But, you know, like for Steve, he's not shooting a Magnum. He's shooting a 6.5 Creedmoor. Uh, he doesn't shoot as much outside of hunting as I do in general, so he's not putting as many rounds down range. Obviously, he's always a fan of wanting something as light as possible. Ultra 5 made a ton of sense for him for day, from day one. For me, I went with the Ultra 7 to balance being still relatively light, um, but I wanted just a little bit more actual suppressor performance because I do shoot a bit more um, volume outside of just hunting. I really like the Ultra 7. When they made the changes to the Gen 2, the basically the Ultra 5 Gen 2 rivals the suppression performance of the Ultra 7. I'm, I'm excited to compare those two. Um, I haven't had the Ultra 5 long enough that I want to say too much there. Um, I'll be hunting with it all fall this year. And then in the future, um, I'll be doing some more side-by-sides between the Ultra 5 Gen 2 and the Ultra 7. Um, but in general, suppressors, um, they've, they've proven to be in two plus years of actual hunting. They've proven to make a marked difference both in the shooting experience as well as potentially the outcome of hunts. And I will just say that the reaction of game to a suppressed shot is definitely different than their reaction to an unsuppressed shot. And I could tell you multiple stories on this. Um, Multiple, multiple stories. Shot numerous um, elk, whether that's, you know, elk that I've shot personally or like been with Steve when he shot elk. But the very first elk that I shot suppressed was a nice bull that had a bunch of cows around him. I shot the bull. The cows just pick up their head. They were feeding at the time. They just picked up their head, like looked around like, oh, that was like, what was that crack? Like, I don't know. Is that a tree? I don't know. Who knows what elk are thinking, but they did not spook. They picked up their head. They looked around and went back to feeding. Um, the next day, Steve shot a bull. Same story. Cows were around. The bull drops. Cows pick up their head, look around, go back to feeding. That's happened numerous times. Numerous times. Um, just this past spring, you guys may have heard that story. Steve and I were out bear hunting in Idaho. Basically, we had two boars on the same hillside. Um, I shot my bear, Steve's boar, again, maybe 200 yards up the same hillside. Did not spook. I shoot, actually shot, I think, twice. Steve's boar picks up his head, looks around, wasn't spooked, wasn't even like, didn't, wasn't even apparently like alert. Um, just definitely heard something and Steve dropped that bear. So it, it truly can make a difference. Those are scenarios talking about game uh, and their reaction to suppress shots. But I will just say as the hunter, it's also incredibly nice not to, in a hunting scenario, worry about forgetting to put on hearing protection and then dealing with ringing ears, especially like even the potential of permanent hearing damage if you were shooting with a muzzle brake, for example. So shooting with a suppressor, just a huge fan. Um, it Yes, it's like, it's stupid that you have to 
go through as many hoops as you have to go through to get one and wait and pay extra money. It's dumb. The process is not nearly as hard as you may think. It just costs some time and money. And at the end of the day, once you go through that and you are shooting suppressed, I don't think you'll ever go back to not shooting suppressed. So even if like the cost is an issue for you, if I had, you know, an extra rifle that I didn't necessarily shoot much, I would sell that rifle in a heartbeat to then fund a suppressor for my primary rifle. Like in a heartbeat, I'd much rather have fewer rifles and then one rifle that's suppressed. That's my primary rifle. So if the budget's concerned and you're maybe sitting on not even a rifle, but just extra gear, just look at it, figure it out, get a suppressor. If you are going to be rifle hunting with any consistency in the future is my opinion. All right. So the stock slash chassis, when I originally built this rifle, it was in a stock from AG composites. Uh, those guys at AG have a bunch of models. They build carbon fiber stocks. The model that I went with in particular was the Visigoth stock. Uh, it was a fantastic stock. It was really light, incredibly comfortable. Um, I loved the palm swell on it, loved the cheek on it, uh, the forend. There was nothing not to like about that stock, except that I just over time, didn't want to stock anymore. I wanted a chassis. I wanted a folding chassis in particular. Part of that is shooting suppressed and having the extra length of the suppressor. Part of that was honestly our very first trip to Kodiak, like just dealing with that brush and thinking it, it would be so nice to reduce the profile of the rifle as much as humanly possible. Um, so over time, I went to a chassis uh, again like i had to originally wait because what i mentioned before about the xm length action there was not options out there the guys at xlr um, did come out with an xm length option for their element chassis um, so once that option came out i ordered one uh, and then the guys at xlr have quite the wait time or at least they did it this time i think they still do i'm not sure um, but there's a lot of demand for the product and uh, they're, you know, a great small company here in the U.S. And just they can't turn them and burn them as fast as they can sell them, essentially. So I had to wait a while like everybody else and then finally got my XLR chassis. So I have the Element um, 4.0 magnesium chassis from XLR. When you fold the buttstock uh, to the side, so you have it in like packing mode, if you will. It essentially reduces the length of the chassis itself and therefore the overall length of your rifle by about 11 inches, which is obviously significant. Imagine taking a foot off of the rifle. So the other great things about a chassis, um, you know, a folder, yes. Also just adjustability. So like in the XLR element, the cheek piece uh, can be raised or lowered. You can set it in just the position that you want. You can use different components, so like different grips, for example, if you have a, a grip profile or shape or material that you really like, the grip itself is interchangeable. It uses an AR style grip. Um, one thing, you know, on the, on the chassis, I'll speak quick to the Arca rail 
So if you ever want to shoot off a tripod, which is something I've done more and more of, having something like Arca, which is like a dovetail, that can integrate directly into a tripod head is fantastic. Now on my AG Composites stock, I had a short section. I had a short Arca rail. I think it was like two and a half, three inches. So I had a way to mount my rifle directly to a tripod. All well and good. But when you only have a short section of Arca or like one piece of Arca to mount into a tripod, what you'll find is that as you begin to shoot steeper up and hi- uphill and downhill angles, the position of that Arca becomes really important. And then it's sometimes very difficult to get yourself in a comfortable shooting position at angles. So with something like the XLR chassis, there's full length Arca rail. So instead of having like three inches of Arca, I have over a foot, meaning I can slide the chassis forward and backwards. I can change, do I want the tripod tripod mounted very far out on the forend or do I want it mounted back near the magwell? And again, as you start shooting at angles in different positions, that becomes really, really critical for both the speed of your setup as well as just the overall position and comfort when shooting off of a tripod. So to me, a full length Arca rail flat out does not, like it's such a benefit compared to just an Arca section. So for me, on a chassis, getting that full length Arca rail is is huge. The XLR, um, I'm really, really happy with it really happy with it. The only things I will say that are kind of for downsides are one is it's expensive. Um, the chassis itself is costly. And then if you want it to be as light as possible, which I did and went with things like their carbon fiber, buttstock and carbon fiber grip, carbon fiber grip that just adds up. So again, it's a, it's a costly investment, um, that may or may not work in your budget. It would be I'll say it would be similar to what I said about suppressors though. At the end of the day, I've noticed so many benefits from having a chassis that once again, if I was like sitting on rifles or other gear I didn't need, I'd be selling that stuff to fund something like this. So um, obviously the entire concept of a custom rifle is just flat out going to be expensive. And I'll talk more about this later, but once you figure out what you want from a rifle, I'm fully in the camp of, I'd rather have one rifle that's built exactly the way I want it than to have three rifles and have these options. So would I sell a rifle to fund a suppressor? Yes. Would I sell a rifle to fund a chassis? Yep. Doesn't mean everybody's in that position, but that's how strongly I feel about having those items now at this point. Um, Another great thing I skipped over on the XLR, it has an integrated bubble level right in the chassis itself. So you can add a bubble level to your scope or in your scope rings. We'll talk more about that in a second. But I found it incredibly helpful to have the bubble level directly in the chassis. It's easy to glance at when I'm in a shooting position and on the scope. And then it's also less sensitive, meaning if you have a bubble level in your rings or attached to your scope, 
clearly you're setting the position of that level and hopefully you're doing it right. Maybe you have a bubble level that isn't actually showing you what's level when you think it's level, but having it in the chassis and the way that it's all machined, um, it's just going to be much more consistent because it's at the source. It's not up to you to position or install this level. It's machined perfectly within the chassis itself, which is a big benefit. Um, another chassis, Steve's been running the MDT Hunt 26. Um, it is a carbon fiber chassis, again, from MDT. The XLR is built from magnesium, which is a metal. So one potential downside, and this has not honestly bugged me too much yet, was that being metal, if you carry it on hand, obviously, and then hunt in cold weather, that's a recipe for some very cold hands. The MDT Hunt 26 is built from carbon fiber, so it's not going to have that issue in particular. There's numerous other differences between the MDT and the XLR. Um, I was able to just recently get my hands on an MDT, so I will be having more opportunity to compare those two side by side. My, from what I know, both from handling Steve's rifle in the past, as well as now getting some experience personally more with the MDT compared to the XLR, is I, there's just going to be preferences involved. I'll put it that way. So I will, I will report more on that in the future. Happy to talk more about that in the future and talk about the differences, potentially some of the pros and the cons. At the end of the day, I think they're both going to be fantastic options and it's just going to boil down to, hey, here are the differences, potential pros and cons, and what your personal preference may want out of a chassis. But more to come on that later down the road. Moving on in this rifle build, for the trigger, I have a Timney Elite Hunter. Um, I have other rifles with a Trigger Tech trigger. So those are the, in terms of aftermarket drop-in triggers, those are the two I have experience with. They're both been great. Um, the Timney, I prefer more. And I, for me, that just boils down to primarily the feel. I just, it feels right to me. In particular, the the trigger shoe, like what your finger's actually interfacing with on the Timney I have, is just wide and it's flat. And I find that more comfortable than the trigger tech that's narrow and kind of has some more shape and ridges to it. Again, that's 100% personal preference. Both the Timney and the Trigger Tech have been easy to adjust, very reliable, offer a clean break, uh, no pre-travel, over-travel, etc. Um, so I think they'd both be great drop-in triggers. For my preference, I'll be buying another Timney in the future if I need to pick between the two. The rifle scope. Um, if you've listened to the podcast over the years, you've probably heard us talk about quite quite a few rifle scopes. I originally had the Zeiss Z4, uh, 4 to 16 by 44 on this rifle when I built it. Around that time, I also owned what I think were the most comparable scopes to that, uh, which were the Vortex Razor LHT and also the Leopold VX5 HD. All three of those scopes are going to be roughly around the thousand-ish dollar price point. You can probably find deals on all of them under a thousand. 
And then they're all roughly around the 20 ounce weight range and all have pretty sig- similar magnification, right? So like the, the VX5 is going to be a 3 to 15. The Zeiss is going to be a 4 to 16, for example. But those three scopes, you know, if you call it an 800 to $1,000 price point and being having the features that most hunters are looking for, being able to dial, um, having clear glass, and then being relatively lightweight. Like those are the three top scopes kind of that meet that criteria. They're all nice. Um, They all have differences and pros and cons. Having spent more time with each of them, I would continue to hunt with them. I also don't fully 100% truly for really like remote, rugged or demanding hunts, 100% trust them. So when it came to things like, you know, I'm getting ready to leave on this mountain goat hunt in Alaska, crazy terrain, um, there's a good chance I'll be slipping, sliding, falling, etc., bumping my scope. I just wanted something that was more purpose built to be rugged, even if that means sacrificing and having the necessity of carrying a bit more weight. So the rifle is now using a Night Force NXS compact. Um, I, it boils down to flat out, I just trust these scopes more from a rugged durability perspective and since a lot of the hunting i do is just in a pretty rugged environment and i'm not necessarily very friendly to gear that's just the choice that i wanted to go to um steve also had this scope uh before i owned it steve had one and then before i had ever seen steve's a friend of mine had one and I shot it. This is like a couple of years ago. So I was already familiar with it. And like everything else, it comes at a cost. Um, so for me, you know, it was just one of those things like, Hey, it's another added cost. <laughs> it's, a, it's not a cheap scope. Um, I'm not getting this scope for free. Um, so again, it was a situation where I personally, not only sold other scopes, but sold other gear to be able to purchase this Night Force and have zero regrets. It is, there's a few things I'd change about it if I'm being nitpicky, but it's not build quality. It's not glass quality. It's not performance. It's just like, hey, I wish it had a locking windage. It's an exposed windage, for example. So um, I like it being exposed, but I'd like it to be exposed with a lock of some sort, for example. But overall, Great scope. It's their two and a half to 10 by 42. And when I say 10 and guys hear that that's the max magnification, a lot of guys think that's going to be limiting. In all practicality, for my needs and hunting, it is not at all a liability. Case in point, uh, 20. When was that? 2020, maybe, with this rifle when it was there wearing the Zeiss scope at the time, which had 16x magnification. I shot a bull at 500 and I think it's 520, 520 yards. I forget. 
I was on, and this was not intentional. I didn't look at the scope and like set my zoom. This was me in the scope setting the site picture I wanted to see at that distance. And then afterwards looking at, hey, what, what was I on? And even though I had a 16 power scope, when I shot that elk at more than 500 yards, I was on, I think, eight power. 10 power there is not going to be limiting. Even on deer sized game, I've done this. Uh, I haven't shot a deer at 600 yards, but full size silhouettes. Um, actually, that sheep silhouette I mentioned prior um, that was beyond 1,000 yards. Zero issues being on 10 power and not only holding on a silhouette, but holding on the vitals. So for me, 10x is not limiting. For you, I would encourage you that often less magnification is better in the real world because it's going to limit the movement in your sight picture. So I'm just flat out not, even if the scope had, even though the scope was 20 power, I'm not a fan of using more magnification than you need because it introduces movement into your sight picture and also limits your field of view for surroundings, follow-up shots, etc. So if you're the guy who has the 15 power scope, no problem. But if you can't, like if you just by default max out your magnification, start shooting with less magnification and see how it works for you. So the NXS Compact, amazing scope, love it. Um, zero regrets. In terms of the other three, because uh, I know that there's a lot of interest in those three scopes. Again, the Zeiss V4, the Vortex Razor LHT, the Leupold VX5 HD. I'm not saying that you can't hunt with them that can't be trusted for like, well, honestly, a lot of what most people hunting do, right? Like if you're not backpacking a ton, you're not super hard on your gear, they're probably going to be fine. Um, in terms of the three, they all have pros and cons. I think they're all good scopes. There's not one that I wouldn't hunt with. I've hunted and shot with i owned all of those three scopes for well more than a year each one uh, most more quite a bit longer than that and hunted with every single one of them in the field they're good for me my impression after using them all for quite a bit was the v4 to me was the most confidence inspiring from the reliability uh, in particular of the turrets and dialing. I thought the build quality was great. If you remove the um, the turret cap and actually look at the adjustment mechanism, it was built better than the others. So that is the edge to that one. The LHT, in my opinion, had the best, just like the best look through the scope, had the best optical quality glass, I loved the reticle on it. It just, the little floating dot in the center, um, you know, it had MOA hash marks and et cetera outside of that. But the way that that center point was set up and the overall picture through the scope was fantastic. So I would give it kind of like the best glass and reticle design. I also did like the, the design function of their turret. So like you slide the turret up and then rotate it. But when you have the turret pushed down, it's in a locked position. Um, that was nice. It's also nice because you could say, have a hundred yard zero, like your your turret zeroed at a hundred yards. But if you wanted to walk around with a quote unquote zero, meaning you're dialed to like a, 
240, right? For like, if you want to set up a maximum point blank range rifle, meaning if I'm between zero and 400, like I just want to hold, I don't want to dial. You can basically do that with their turret. So even though you have a hundred yard zero, you just figure out your, your max point blank range setting and then just leave your turret there. For example, on the LHT, it would be really nice to do that. The VX5 HD, um, good scope overall. I don't, it didn't have any particular feature that stood out over the others for me. Um, it's just a really all around solid scope. Again, for me though, I just trust the Night Force way more at this point, and that's what I will be using. It's what I've not only in this rifle, I've sold other scopes and bought other Night Force scopes because of it. So that's just what I plan to run. Um, scope rings uh, originally had a set of Zeiss rings on this rifle with my Zeiss scope, and actually really liked those rings. Had a really good um, not only first impression about them, but I liked the design. They seemed fine. Over time though, um, some of these screws would tend to loosen. And then at the same time, uh, a couple of those screws, the heads also began to strip out. Obviously not a good combination of issues when you have screws that are loosening and screws that are then stripping out. Um, I just, again, it's one of those things to me. It's like, yeah, they could have sent me replacements or they could have sent me new screws or whatever. At that point, I just don't want to deal with it. I don't trust it. Um, I'm not going to keep using rings that loosen up and trust them for backcountry hunts. It's just not going to happen. I had already previously owned a set of Hawkins precision rings on another rifle. And that's what I chose again. Um, to replace the Zeiss rings for this rifle in particular. So own uh, a couple sets of Hawken precision rings now. Um, that first set I've owned for, I don't know, four plus years. Um, never budged, never had issues. Love the build quality. And that's what I chose as a replacement for this rifle as well. One cool thing uh, with the Hawkins precision rings, they're stout, like but they're still light and they have some options to have um, a bubble level, which I mentioned prior. And it's integrated directly into the scope um, ring, the top ring. So you can have it centered or you can have an offset bubble level. Um, you can choose either one. Uh, they're just great rings. I zero issues, plan to keep using them. Again, just a category where if I need scope rings in the future, I'm just going to not look around. I'm going to go buy some from Hawkins Precision. Again, they make other stuff as well. They make uh, bottom metals, magazines, etc., cetera, um, which I have not personally used. But from my experience with their products, as well as handling some of their stuff and knowing guys who use their stuff, I just have a high impression of what they make and what they do. And they're hunters and shooters and make everything here in the U.S. So big fan of uh, Hawkins Precision. Um shooting call it support bipod primarily we'll talk about that um for years my primary bipod has been a spartan precision bipod they're fantastic i love the attachment system um i i really don't remember the last time i've shot 
an animal off of a bipod though. I just, in the country that I hunt, don't tend to have opportunities to get prone much. And so I don't find myself using a bipod for hunting as much. Um, I still like having one along, which is part of the reason I love a Spartan bipod is it's not attached. I can have it in my pocket or I can have it in my packs accessible side pocket, put it on in two seconds, boom, I have a bipod when I need it, but it's out of the way when I don't. Um, and because they're very light, I'm also not carrying around this weight penalty that I probably won't use. So their stuff's great. I particularly like it when you can have the Spartan mounting point recessed into your rifle stock. So that's what uh, I had on the AG composite stock. Uh, That's what I have on another rifle that I own is the recessed mount to where there's nothing essentially sticking out of the stock to mount the bipod to it's all recessed when i move to the chassis i lose that option not to use a spartan bipod but to have it recessed so i'm going to the chassis has m lock which is like a an accessibility uh, sorry an accessory um mount that's standardized so you can get different accessories that use m lock mount those to the chassis It's not going to be recessed though for the Spartan bipod or any other bipod. So I was stuck regardless with something protruding from the chassis for the Spartan bipod. And around that time, I also had um, an opportunity to check out a different bipod from Mountain Gear. Matt um, runs Mountain Gear. He's actually from New Zealand and I think makes all the products over there in New Zealand as well. But uh, if you guys are unaware, New Zealand is insane country for hunting. um, And there's big demands on gear if you hunt in New Zealand in in many ways because of the terrain, because of the weather, etc. And Matt makes some awesome, lightweight, very specialized, focused gear for hunting um, I was aware of things that he had made, like uh, he's made some Tika accessories, for example. Um, so that was relevant to my first rifle build. I think it's how I first met Matt. Um, but he had an updated bipod out. Uh, it's just called a Mountain Gear bipod. Um, it's five ounces, so incredibly light. But the the amount of adjustability of this thing is pretty mind-blowing, really. So yes, the legs are telescoping. You can change the bipod height by extending the legs, but you can change the um, the angle of the bipod legs. You can have them splayed way out. You can bring them further towards the center. Um, you can cant them forward in multiple increments. You can pan off of this bipod head. You can tilt with the bipod. like. There's pretty much an adjustment in every way you can imagine to to use the bipod in in very awkward positions, which is again like a testament to what they need in New Zealand because of the steep terrain and could very well play a part in a shot opportunity for my upcoming upcoming mountain goat hunt. Um, and the sucker's still five ounces. Like it, it's pretty dang mind blowing. So I've been using that this year. Uh, it mounts via Picatinny rail so i have a small section on my chassis of picatinny rail um, which is actually lower profile than the spartan mount which i also appreciated 
Um, and I plan on uh, continuing to use this Mountain Gear bipod. Um, I definitely want more time with it. I've shot it a bunch. Um, again, not yet in a hunting scenario, but I have shot it in terrain and at the range. And um, I really, really like it. I'm, I really feel that it could come into play and that level of adjustability could be important for um, maybe even a shot opportunity on this upcoming mountain goat hunt. So more to come on that, but uh, another very specialized bipod um, from a small company that, yeah, is truly pretty mind blowing on the amount of adjustability and everything built in this bipod and it's five ounces. So the other thing just to mention there, and we've talked about this a bunch on the podcast, uh, I mentioned most of my shot opportunities don't come off of a bipod. I've shot more animals off of the Wiser Precision Quick Sticks, um, either from a seated or a kneeling position. Um, yeah, far more of my shots. Um, this past bear, both my past elk, uh, deer and Kodiak. Um, yeah, I could just go through story and story of shooting animals off of those. So that's really practical. Um, you can do that with any rifle, no special attachment. Um, that's the primary, you know, what has been my primary support method. And then as I mentioned prior, um, and especially relevant with everything I talked about with the full length Arca rail, my chassis is shooting off of a tripod. Um, even when Steve and I were out on our bear hunt, um, you know, we'd st- we took time on the way out during the pack out to shoot off of the tripod. And it's something I've done as much as I've had opportunity to do with the range um, and just in different ways. So it's, I could see that coming into play for sure um, in hunting scenarios. So from a, uh, call it an overall support perspective, um, the Mountain Gear Bipod, the Wiser Precision Quick Sticks are something I'm always going to have. And then on many hunts, especially when I have a spotter, um, I'm going to have a tripod along and I'll have the capability to shoot off of that. So it's kind of a high level look at all the options there that will be in my arsenal. Um, yeah, that's, that's a rundown on most of the components. Um, I didn't yet talk too much about the cartridge choice. So seven SOM, um, again, that's a seven millimeter short action ultra mag. Um, so yeah, a, a Magnum cartridge, but in a short action length, um, ballistically quite equivalent to, um, a 280 Ackley Improved, which is a long action cartridge. Um, you know, obviously seven millimeter rim mag is another seven millimeter Magnum. Again, long action cartridge there. Seven PRCs coming out soon. Um, again, long action there. So really the big picture with the seven millimeter SOM is trying to, um, get Magnum, you know, type velocities, but from a short action, really small, um, you know, short action. Yes. But then what that does with the Magnum is you have a wider, fatter case. So if you really nerd out on like ballistics and start looking at things like the powder column and how that creates burn consistency, there's some inherent benefits to that. For me, I'll just say that um, from, you know, several things. One is I think the seven millimeter in general is a great sweet spot for hunting cartridges, whether that's a seven SOM, seven rib max, um, 280 Ackley improved, 
um, 708 in some instances um, for deer size game, upcoming 7PRC, etc. When you're in that seven millimeter family, there's just such a great variety of bullet choices that are so effective for hunting. You could be shooting 140 grain, you could be shooting 180 grain, again, so much in between. Um, yeah, there's just so many options, so many options. So for, and then you look at things like the, the BC of those seven millimeter bullets. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm a huge fan of the seven millimeter family now. Still own a six, five, um, actually sold my 30 caliber. Um, for me, I plan to stick with the seven Psalm for a long, long, long time. Um, and I've set myself up to do that. Part of, part of what's difficult these days with, with honestly, any cartridge is especially, you know, either finding ammunition or finding the components if you're a reloader. So seven Psalm brass is an example has been notoriously difficult to get. Um, I can't tell you like in good confidence, go build a seven Psalm right now. I can't tell you that in good confidence about a lot of cartridges. What I would say if you're interested in a new cartridge and building a rifle or even upgrading a rifle is source the the ammunition or the components first, then build your rifle. So I'd hate to say go build a 7 Psalm, go build even a 6.5 P or C necessarily, etc. Like make sure you can feed this thing before you build it. So for me, that has meant um, being patient and diligent about in particular, um, having seven song brass, but yeah, love the cartridge plan to shoot it for a very, very long stinking time. Um, this year in particular, I am shooting the 160 grain Nosler Acubond. Um, last fall I was hunting with the hammer hunter bullets. Uh, that's why I shot that elk with, I mentioned prior, um, shot my bear with the Acubond this spring. Um, really selected the Acubon this year. I actually just talked about this on a recent Monday minute, but because of my goat hunt, um, and then leading up to that, or sorry, shortly following that would be an elk hunt. Um, but yeah, I'm, I've developed loads with a ton of different bullets and I'm not opposed to changing bullets as needed for particular hunts, you know, to kind of fine tune the performance that I'm looking for. But the 160 grain Acubond has for a long time been a really solid performer and has a great reputation um, from things like the 7 Rim Mag, etc. that translate to the 7 Psalm as well. So that's what I'm running. I uh, have a, a lot of confidence in it. I can talk more about the 7 Psalm, reloading, answer those questions, um, questions on different components of this rifle, let me know. You know, just to wrap up, I will say that, yes, a custom rifle is more of a luxury than a necessity, right? Like, don't let not having a super fancy rifle keep you from hunting. We say this all the time about gear, and it's 100% true. I hunted for decades with, and I still enjoy hunting with, like, I have my girl, my grandpa's old 30-30, and if there's hunts where I, like, and I'm whitetail hunting, I love taking that sucker out it's not what I want to take necessarily on a backcountry bear hunt, this mountain goat hunt, a big elk hunt, et cetera. Like you can get away with a Ruger American, uh, a cheap savage, et cetera. I'm not saying you need a custom rifle. 
what I will say is as you spend more time and you're willing to invest in a rifle that meets your needs and you have enough shooting experience to know what you want from a custom rifle. When you get to that point, I am in the camp of, I would much rather have this one custom rifle than three or four or whatever more generic factory rifles, right? Like that's just where I'm at. That's what I've been through, where I've come to. And so it doesn't make sense for anybody. Um, Sorry, it doesn't make sense for everybody. But if you get to the point where you're shooting a lot, you're hunting a lot, you know what you want, you have experience to know what you don't want, you have a reason that factory rifles can't quite do what you want to do, whether that's a shorter barrel or you know a folding chassis or this or that or the other thing. When it comes time to put things together, just do a lot of research. Um, think long-term, find someone that is willing to help guide you, whether that's just to give an opinion or just making sure that your builder is on board with wanting to meet your needs and making your vision come true and not just sell you a rifle that they make. Um, that was one thing with the guys at Sterling I really appreciated is they they allowed me to communicate what I wanted and then made sure that they were putting together what I wanted, not necessarily, you know, they have this package that they sell. So, um, yeah, lots of rambling. That was an hour plus of me talking about a rifle. I hope you guys appreciate that deep dive. Um, we can do more stuff like this in the future. If you like it, let us know, send us an email. If you have questions, let us know, but, uh, hope that was helpful. If, Again, you're considering building a rifle in the future, and a lot of this obviously applies to even maybe just upgrading a rifle that you already own. But check out the links in the show description. There's pictures of the rifle, more information, links to everything I mentioned, uh, and more. So check that out. So always appreciate you guys tuning in. If you haven't yet, hit the subscribe or follow button in your podcast app to receive future episodes automatically. We'll talk to you soon.